0: Hey everyone! If you love listening to Curbsiders and want to enhance the experience, then now is a great time to join the Curbsiders Patreon with new annual memberships where you can save 10% off the monthly rate. You'll have the option to hear all the episodes ad-free plus twice monthly bonus episodes. You can sign up at patreon.com curbsiders. This is a great way to use that CME money that's probably burning a hole in your pocket. Plus support the show so we can keep bringing you clinical pearls, Practice changing knowledge, mini-series like Teach and Addiction Medicine, our digest newsletter, and of course expand our video content. So join the CashLack family today at patreon.com slash curbsiders. Hey Paul. My family told me to stop telling Thanksgiving jokes, but you know what? I said I couldn't quit cold turkey. <laughs> Are we gonna make Nora go first, Paul? I feel like we should, yeah. Yeah, let's... Nora?
1: Okay, just ripping off the Band-Aid. So, Matt, what do you call rain on Turkey Day? I don't know. Foul weather. (laughs) That's not
0: bad. (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah. Paul? Nora, what sound does a turkey's phone make?
1: What sound?
0: Welcome back to the Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Otto here with my great friend and America's primary care physician, Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Paul, how are you doing? I'm great, Matt. Thanks for asking. How are you? I'm doing great, Paul. Because you know this is a a digest episode, but you know it's close to Thanksgiving when this is going to be coming out. So this is like a terf- tofurkey cakes episode. I know it's not your favorite thing, Paul, but uh, I really I really enjoy the pun in the episode title. So it's, it's- yeah. Uh now Paul I, I'm glad. We have with us a great a great co-host but before we get there can you please remind people what is it that we do on the curbsiders?
2: Sure man always we are the internal medicine podcast and ordinarily we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. Tonight as you mentioned we are actually reviewing some of our highlights from the Curbsiders digest which comes out what twice a month is it now or is it just one time a month. Oh, Nora's slacking off because we are joined <laughs> by Dr. Nora Toronto, who only puts out this voluminous work of current medicine once a month. Um, Nora, how are you?
1: I'm doing great. You know, getting excited for all of the festivities in November and December, and the Philadelphia half marathon slash marathon.
2: Is the 18th,
1: 18th and 19th right? Yeah. Which will have been, you know, in the past week or two <laughs> at the, the time
0: that this airs. But uh, yep. are you? Are, which are you running? The half marathon or the marathon? Or are you just watching?
1: I am running the half. Um, I, Good choice. I declined to run the full.
0: <laughs> you know, when you run the full, uh, and and you, there's a part where you're running out towards Maniunk, and all the fast people are running past you, I and you to. know that you have like no. a really long way still to go. It's it's rough.
2: And the grimmest part is those people are running downhill as you're slogging uphill. Like they've already made it past Ooh. the worst part and you're just trucking and dying in the cold weather. And it's just, it's the
0: worst. It's that the worst thing I've ever very emotionally distressing.
1: Yeah. No. But Philly is it. a
0: good marathon. If, if yeah. people in the audience are thinking of running it, it's a—it's pretty flat and people get good times there. I think they use it to qualify for some of the other bigger marathons, Boston, New York, et cetera. Yeah. So.
1: I know a shocking number of people who are coming from out of town to run it, which I think is for that exact reason, maybe to qualify. So,
2: And contrary to Philly's reputation, the people are delightful. Like it's like the one time where like the crowds are <laughs> uniformly positive. They're cheering for you. They're not throwing anything at you. It's, it's really it's it's lovely. So, yeah, I, I will echo that, Matt. If you get a chance to run it, marathon's your thing. The Philly's a good one to do.
0: This message has been brought to you by the city of Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> not <laughs> where sponsored. All us, where all of us live, kind of. And not the uh, marathon, which I think is
2: paid for by an insurance company of memory serves, so. Yeah. yeah. I
1: think that's right.
0: <laughs> all right, so we have a lot of great articles to talk about. A reminder for the audience that this and most episodes are available for CME through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Also wanted to thank everyone who has signed up for the patreon where we're putting out bonus episodes each month where you can get ad free shows you can hang out on our discord uh hear all about paul's uh vinyl that he's been buying lately um, and that's at patreon.com curbsiders so with all that uh preamble uh let's let's get into our first article nora you're up first and uh tell us the trial name and then maybe pause to let paul critique it and then we can uh go on
1: The trial that we're gonna talk about first today is Steph Hef Pef. Paul. Comments.
2: Yeah, awful. I mean, where (laughs) tell me tell me where the P is.
1: (laughs) It just all blends together, you know? (laughs) Well actually,
2: no, the the P I guess is patience, but like there's a a T that I guess is smacked out in the middle of some magnetide to make the whole thing work. Like it is just it's just a mess of an abbreviation. They should be ashamed of themselves.
1: Yep. And there's another one coming that's steph hef pef. DM. So, don't worry. There's <laughs> Great. more. Great.
0: Um. <laughs> so I'm guessing that in that version they have heppef and diabetes whereas in this mm. version they just had HEF-PEF.
1: Indeed, that that is one of one of the better names, I guess, in that context that you can tell that one of the inclusion criteria for that trial, which has not yet been published. So we're going to talk about Hef peth to start, which Dr. Alyssa Mancini covered in issue 46. Um, and this is uh, covering a randomized clinical trial that was just published in the New England Journal in The last couple of months. Um, This trial uh, looked at a population with HEFPEF, so that's heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, and obesity. And uh, looked at uh, the effect of semaglutide, a subcutaneous weekly injectable medication versus placebo in this patient population with heart failure, looking at both symptom improvement uh, as well as weight changes. Those were the two primary outcomes in the trial. Uh, This study was a positive trial. And uh, in the patient population, which was 529 patients who were randomized equally to semaglutide weekly or placebo weekly over a year, we saw that there was an improvement in symptom and physical limitation in the patient population that received semaglutide greater than with placebo. Um, This was based on a Kansas City cardiomyopathy questionnaire clinical summary score, or the KCCQ-CSS. There were also improvements in uh, body weight change greater in the semaglutide group than in the placebo group, and that was um, minus 13.3% with semaglutide compared to minus 2.6% with placebo. So what do you guys know about the KCCQ-CSS?
0: We should point out that you're you're mentioning these the KCCq, and the, there was a six minute walk distance, and there was, you know the the we knew the body weight was going to get low. We already know it works for that, right? Mm-hmm. So that wasn't that exciting. I, they They didn't go after the hard endpoints here, you know, right. the heart failure hospitalization. They didn't go after death or all cause or cardiovascular death. So I think that's the big glaring thing to point mm-hmm. out. but the the kCCq, Nora, I, I, I'd i be curious to see, because I, I don't know that there's a standard answer to this. I looked up, you know, what is a clinically meaningful difference on the KCCQ? I found uh, one article that was saying seven or greater would be for HEF-PEF would be considered mm-hmm. uh, significant and nine or greater would be significant for HEF-REF. I'm not sure if you found similar numbers or different numbers.
1: Yeah, I've seen five according to some uh studies and then 10, according to others. And it's, it seems plausible that those numbers are different in the HEF-PEF and HEF-REF populations. So I think that's, I think that's right.
0: And in this one, how, what was the, what was the difference in that score? Like, did it meet, so did it meet significance?
1: Yeah. So it met significance statistically, first off, the difference. There was a difference of 7.8 points uh, between the semaglutide and the placebo group. Um, And that was representative of an improvement of 16.5 points with semaglutide compared to 8.7 points with placebo. And just a reminder for those of us who aren't looking at these scores every day, but um, it's a score spectrum of 100. uh, And uh, so Patients were included if their score was lower than 90 in this study, um, with higher scores correlating with better outcomes.
2: This podcast is brought to you by Uncommon Goods. It's officially time to kickstart your holiday shopping, but there is no cause for panic. Uncommon Goods is here to make your holiday shopping stress-free by scouring the globe for the most remarkable and truly unique gifts for everyone on your list. Whether you're shopping for mom, dad, teenagers, in-laws, or your best friends, Uncommon Goods knows exactly what they want. And in fact, as is often the case, I was looking to shop for other folks and found a bunch of stuff for myself... A couple of things that I found, there is this cookbook called Eat What You Watch, which is a cookbook based on foods that are seen in movies, so you can actually make the breakfast spaghetti from Elf. Along those lines, there is a The Video Game Chef, 76 Iconic Foods from Pac-Man to Elden Ring, which is a cookbook that has recipes based on foods that you can find in video games, which is awesome. I have myself all shopped for, now I need to shop for other folks, and when I shop at Uncommon Goods, I am supporting artists and small independent businesses. They make fine products in small batches, so you should shop now before they sell out this holiday season. Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high quality, unique, and often handmade or made in the United States. They have the most meaningful, out-of-the-ordinary gifts anywhere. From art and jewelry to kitchen, home, and bar, Uncommon Goods has something for everyone. Not the same lackluster gifts you could find just anywhere. To get 15% off your next gift, go to uncommongoods.com curb. That's uncommongoods.com curb for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time
0: offer. Uncommon Goods,
2: we're all out of the ordinary.
0: So the difference between the groups was seven point eight. So that's right yeah. in that range of like what would be considered clinically significant based exactly. on previously published things. And then uh, for this, for the six minute walk, I looked this up too because I had no idea. And th- the patients in this, it looked like they had three hundred. They could all walk three hundred meters, or the the, the mm-hmm. mean or the median was three hundred meters, and that was. For a moderate improvement in that, a clinically significant improvement would be more than 25 meters. And then a, a large improvement would be considered more than 50 meters. So this, they walked about something like 20 meters more yep. uh, in, the, in the group that was given semaglutide. So not as impressive on that measure, but that was one of the things they were touting as like why this was a positive trial.
1: Right. And as you said before, the trial was not powered to look at kind of important clinical outcomes like heart failure, hospitalization, or death, or cardiovascular event, but they did see a numerical increase uh, in the placebo group compared to the semaglutide group in terms of hospitalizations. Also kind of interesting. They saw an increase in cardiac event, uh, kind of looking at the adverse events in this population, saw this increase in cardiac events in the placebo group compared to semaglutide. It was almost all, it looked like a combination of heart failure and uh, like exacerbations that were labeled in a couple of different ways, and then arrhythmia, so atrial flutter, atrial fibrillation. But just kind of interesting that 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 did Mm. seem to be a difference in adverse event profile.
0: Paul, anything that jumped out to you in this one? Not really, just
2: because it's not that surprising to me. Like, I, I, I we were talking a little bit off-air. Like, I, I would be curious to know how direct the relationship was between the weight loss and mm-hmm. sort of the improvement in outcomes. And then also, you know, it's just, again, not surprising. You know, lower weight means sort of less risk for sort of HFF, HF, less risk for OSA, less risk for atrial fibrillation, which, which you actually saw an increase in those events in the placebo group. So, like, these things all kind of line up with stuff that we know already. It's just nice to kind of see it. Laying out and studied specifically, but I, I would, of course, be curious to see the hard outcomes that we talked about before. But in, in total, this is not terribly surprising to me, though it's nice that someone studied it.
0: And I, I thought that the, the pathophysiology about how this works too is interesting. Nora, the the editorialist, like there was an accompanying editorial for this one since it was a major study, and they were just talking about how you know a lot of the drugs for ref work by Um, adjusting this sort of load to capacity mismatch that exists, you know, sort of the mechanical issue that exists with HEFREF. But the fact that like SGLT2s work on HEFPEF and GLP1s, if if GLP1s show that they work in both, then maybe it's some other thing. It's maybe this, they said, maybe it's working on a plethora of metabolic and inflammatory changes that are occurring. And, you know, so maybe it's more of this, uh, it's not that mechanical level that it's working on, maybe there's something else going on that we just uh, haven't identified yet like it's not all just the weight loss cuz they they did say with liraglutide they tried to look at that and in some calorie calorie restriction studies mm-hmm. where there was weight loss they looked at markers of diastolic dysfunction and um it, you know it it didn't seem like it was as as strong as what we're seeing here with this so maybe there's something different
1: yeah, no, it's kind of interesting. It feels like it's in between both of those, uh, where we know that it's metabolic; it has metabolic effects, but it also uh, clearly has more than metabolic effects, or it mm-hmm. seems to in this context. And so, kind of parsing out what what exactly those are, and what patient populations in HEFPAF and then in other other uh, contexts these drugs work for is is the question. The only two other small things. To note with this trial is that the trial was ongoing as Emperor Preserved, which looked at SGLT2 inhibitors in HEF-PEF, was published. And so a pretty low number of patients uh, mm-hmm. in this trial were on SGLT2 inhibitors. It was not an exclusion criteria that you could be on an SGLT2 inhibitor and, and on this trial, but um, just the, the drug hadn't yet kind of entered the the toolbox That's for That's a HF-PEF. great point. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it was only like 4%. Yeah, uh, exactly. Less than 4% even yeah. in total. So that's... Yeah. yeah. Which I don't think is a limitation necessarily. Like if anything, it no. would kind of muddy the waters
2: that they're on it. So I think it's, mm-hmm. it's yeah. kind of hit the sweet spot to just look at GLP-1s in isolation.
0: Mm-hmm. Anything else, Nora, before we get to your, I guess we're going to give a Tof- Tofurky Cakes rating for this?
1: Um, I guess the only other other thing to look out for is the SELECT trial, uh, which uh, data yet to be published, but the the company that Makes semaglutide just published a press release in August saying that semaglutide does appear to reduce the risk of major adverse cardiovascular events uh, in patients with overweight or obesity. So I think uh, that that's probably going to add to our interest in this drug in this context.
0: Yeah. Is this practice changing for you? Do you think it's, and uh, in, in how many tofurkey cakes do you give it out of, out of five?
1: I do think it's, pra- it's going to be practice changing in this population where we don't have that many tools, uh, to, to treat symptoms or, uh, to improve outcomes. Uh, so I think probably like four and a half tofurkey cakes out of five. Mm. I can't say I'm going to be prescribing it for this indication all that often, but, uh, but I, I am excited to see it prescribed very frequently.
0: Is it okay if I ask America's primary care physician, is this going to change anything for you, uh, Paul? I
2: mean, only if you tell me what a tofurkey cake actually is. But, <laughs> I mean, it's, no. know, it, you're going to get me talking. But, like, the SGLT2 inhibitors, I feel like, are medications where the cardiologists often wait for the primary care doctor to start it and sort of vice mm-hmm. versa. And as a result, the patient just never ends up getting this very high-yield evidence-based medication. I do worry about this being in the same kind of category. So it might just heighten my interest in prescribing them and maybe change the way that I talk to patients about it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, you know, if someone has obesity, it's probably a conversation you should be having already. Um, and then if you have this, if you have comorbid have specifically, certainly um, that would be just one more reason to sort of be a little bit more, not aggressive, but it's sort of just more evidence to talk to the patient about actually starting this medication. I don't know, what are your, what's your take?
0: These have been around for a while, right? We've been prescribing these for diabetes for over 10 years. I think my my concern is just when you suddenly expand the drugs to mm-hmm. tens of millions of people, you know, because now, like, they're just every indication. Like, like people are saying they should put these in the water the way they would joke about we should put statins in the water. Statins, yes. And mm-hmm. I, I just am still worried. I'm like, I'm just praying that we're not going to find some just, like, terrible... Uh, Issue that that we overlooked um, that wasn't really you know until you s- spun it out to tens of millions of people that that then becomes apparent. But as of right now, I mean, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic. I would like to see a bigger trial of this. This was a small trial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to see the hard endpoints. You know, make sure that those are improving too. I think they probably will. And again, like you said, Paul, I don't know how much of this is just that the person was just you know losing weight, maybe eating less of bad mm-hmm. things that were. causing inflammation and, you know, exacerbating their heart failure. So maybe, you know, I don't know how much of this is that, but I think in general, um, these medications are, you know, this, these are like the blockbuster drug of the 2020s for sure.
2: It does feel hauntingly like the statin conversations Mm -hmm. back in the the 20-odds where we're like, what about statins for CBD exacerbations? (laughs) Or how about statins for this? Or like, you're just going to like throwing at everything to see what it stuck. And like, we were just we were so excited about them as a class of medications. And then the same sort of pleotropic, hand wavy conversations, like they do something.
0: Eh. Yeah.
2: So like, it's, you know, so it feels very much the same. So hopefully we'll kind of settle out and actually, as the evidence grows, have very specific indications yeah. for them as opposed to the, everything we're trying to make them work for right now.
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think you can wait until uh, they get an official approval mm-hmm. for heart heart failure with preserved ejection fraction before you start, you know, pushing it for that indication. But most yeah. of my patients in this boat either have diabetes or obesity. So you could prescribe it for those indications and not feel bad about it. And this is, that's right. you know, it seems like it's certainly safe in heart failure right now. So I think we can go with that. All right. Well, I, I think that warranted a bigger discussion just because it's such a hot topic and people are mm-hmm. asking, like every uh, mo- like every other office visit, someone asking me about uh, semaglutide, so better. Yeah.
1: I feel like, w- whereas with the SGLT2s, there was kind of hesitation, especially with the like genital uh, candida infections, kind mm-hmm. of the black box warning, whereas this to to some extent, except for the scarcity of the drug, like people are really excited about. um, And so I, I do wonder whether there will be more uptake because of that, actually.
2: This podcast is brought to you by Locum Story. What has changed in healthcare? The opportunities, the lifestyle, and probably you. Your needs, wants, and goals are probably different than they were five years ago. Now's the perfect time to explore Locum Tenen's opportunities and see how it might fit into your career story. There's not a one size fits all solution for everyone, and the variety of opportunities might surprise you. Start your research at locumstory.com, an unbiased educational resource about Locum's Tenant. You'll hear firsthand stories about the many different reasons why physicians choose locums and how it works for them. The Locum Story website has the tools that you need to explore Locum's pay and demand for your specialty and compare different locums tenants agencies. There's even a simple quiz to see if Locums is right for you. Locums could be an essential part of your career that adapts to your needs. Do your own research at locumstory.com.
0: We're going to be talking about tricyclic antidepressants uh, for irritable bowel syndrome, Paul, IBS. And this is the Atlantis trial. Paul?
2: Yeah, well, say what it stands for, because I think this is important to see how they got to Atlantis.
0: (laughs) Okay, so this was by Ford et al., and this is amitriptyline at low dose and titrated for irritable bowel syndrome as second-line treatment in primary care, a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled phase 3 trial published in The Lancet in 2023.
2: Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think if we were being honest with ourselves, this would be like the, what, ALDAT, FIBS? (laughs) Six <laughs> foot trial, like so. It's just, I mean, it's it, it, this is tortured. I, whoever came up with this should get millions of dollars. It's awful. I love it. So, congratulations to the team that that wrote this.
0: I do like Atlanta. I mean, Atlantis. I'm I'm a fan of Atlantis. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> I agree. Uh, it's a cool word. <laughs> what what red blooded man isn't a fan of Atlantis, though? the law city? Uh, so this trial. It was, it was a relatively small trial where this was one, where, one of those ones. It was done in, uh, in England. They sent out like 15,000 uh, invitations to patients to, you know, if, to see if they were interested. And a little under 1,300 patients said they were interested. And they ended up narrowing it down to uh, 463 patients who were enrolled in the trial. And they split them between either placebo or low-dose amitriptyline. The amitriptyline was started at 10 milligrams, and over the over three weeks, it could be it could go up to a, a 30 milligrams as the as the maximum dose in this trial. And they were following people with this IBS uh, severity scoring system, IBS-SSS, uh, which was the score. This is a scoring system; it goes up to 500. And uh, these were patients who had moderate to severe IBS. Most patients had. I guess the scores were in around the 270s in in the groups um, at the start of the trial. And not surprisingly, both groups showed improvement over the course of the trial. They followed these patients for six months. And uh, the the between-group difference at the end of the trial was 27 points. Um, So that was statistically significant, but they were they were saying that they were expecting 35 points or more for a clinically meaningful difference um, between the groups. Uh, so I'll pause there. Any questions, comments about this one?
2: I'm, I'm glad they're studying it. It makes sense. We've talked about this before. Um, I, I do wonder if the uptake wasn't so low just because of the stigma attached to this being an antidepressant, at least within that classification. I feel like that's always the, the hurdle that you get over when you're trying to prescribe medications like this for a disorders of the gut brain axis, um, so that's my genius commentary so far. Until we actually get to the results, I think
1: there was also kind of one interesting piece of the uh, the just demographic information. I think th- it was a predominantly IBSD uh, population and mixed, and there was yeah, that- some theory that maybe patients with IBS-C were worried about this potential kind of constipation-related side effects from the amitriptyline, from the mm-hmm. anticholinergic effects, which I, f- I found kind of interesting and m- did make me wonder kind of the, about the selection right. of the patients.
0: Yes. So it's funny that you bring this up. So they, they did pass this off as a positive trial. I told you that it was statistically significant. There was a, a statistically, you know, significant difference. There was 27 points on this scale that's out of 500. And remember, they were starting at a score of 270. But there may have been an issue with blinding because patients definitely had more anticholinergic side effects in the group that was given the tricyclic antidepressants. And there was uh, there was also more dropout in the group uh, that was given placebo. And I wonder how much of that was people that were just like, could kind of tell that they were getting a placebo and not getting an active drug. But uh, it was a well-designed trial overall. I mean, it was intentioned to treat analysis and they did their due diligence to make sure that these patients didn't have like celiac or IBD or something else going on. That's That was part of how they screened a lot of the patients out of it. And, and they also, these patients were also, had already tried first-line therapies. So first-line therapies being things like laxatives, um, changes in diet, Antispasmatics and peppermint oil was also listed there.
1: Have you guys used that?
0: Yes, I okay. have actually. Wow,
1: I had no have you, idea. Paul? No. No? No. So there's, okay. we
0: talked to uh, do, the great Dr. Iris Wang. Um, that was one of the ones that she mentioned. Um, I think if patients have GERD, you have to be a little careful because mm-hmm. yeah, right. yeah. some patients don't tolerate it well, but there are some branded products that I think one of them has like callaway seeds in it or something and the Mm. other one has peppermint in it and they're for IBS or dyspepsia, depending on which they have that patients can get. Sometimes I will I will recommend it, mention it to patients if it's the type of patient that wants that. But essentially these patients were they had moderate to severe IBS. They were had already tried first line therapies. So this was a relevant study because in primary care, usually you would refer out at that point, but I think having this as a second-line option would be something that would be reasonable to do. Even though they didn't meet that 35-point difference between the placebo group, there was, in both groups, like the placebo group and the uh, treatment group, there was a significant drop in that score, uh, almost 100 points in the treatment group and 70 points or so in the the placebo group. So the, the placebo effect with anything in IBS does have an effect as well. I think it's reasonable to try it. And if the person also has chronic pain of some other sort, that may also help.
2: Typically, if I'm reaching for a TCA, I'm trying to kill two birds with one stone. So I might have a migraineur with insomnia, or I might have somebody who has anxiety, maybe some neuropathic pain. And so I think what's interesting in this particular trial is that the baseline presence of depression had no impact on treatment response, and that that also treatment did not improve the somatoform or the depression score. So even though I'd be like, maybe I'll just try to get kind of two things here with one medication might be the reason I reach for that. Actually, this trial would maybe say that's not the way to think about it necessarily. So I, I thought those results were fascinating and they kind of negated mm-hmm. the way that I tend to think about using TCAs.
0: The the editorialist pointed out that the fact that it didn't improve what you would think of as like, you know, as depression, anxiety, some of the CNS related effects, you should use the language, this is a neuromodulator. And it's gonna probably decrease your visceral hypersensitivity right. um, and your pain modulation in the gut, and that maybe that's how it's working. And again, like like you said, uh, did patients not want to take an antidepressant uh, for for what is an organic issue? Um, so I think talking to them about this as a neuromodulator, and um, you know, letting them know that it may have some benefit when added on to these other first line therapies that you should have tried before you get to this. So. I will give this, I guess, a solid 3.5 tofurkey cakes. And I I think, you know, is it practice changing for me? I haven't haven't used TCAs a lot for this. I I was aware it was something that was something you could do. I'll still try the first line things. And usually I'm having success with that. Or oftentimes patients are asking to see GI. So at some point, usually GI is becoming involved. But if you're, depending on the setting you're in, I, I think you should feel comfortable as a primary care prescribing TCAs as long as you, you know, it's it's at a low dose, you counsel them about the side effects that they might look out for. And uh, yeah, so that's it. That's my take on this. Anything else before we go on to Paul's, uh, Paul's article? All right, Paul, what do you got?
2: I, I have, as per usual, made things more complicated for myself than I needed to. So I have from Yang et al. in 2023, the comparison of antiplatelet monotherapies after a percutaneous coronary intervention according to clinical ischemic and bleeding risks in Jack, um, which as I mentioned, came out this year. So the reason I made this more complicated for myself, this was covered, by the way, by the great Dr. Jen DeSalvo in the Digest, um, is that you have to know about a different trial before you actually understand what they were doing with this one. So A plus work on my part. I gave myself two trials <laughs> for the price of one um, because I am a brain genius. So the, the this is... A post-hoc analysis of the host exam trial, which I was glad for the chance to dig into it because probably that would be practice changing for me, and I don't think I knew or thought much about it before kind of going into this post-hoc analysis. But the host exam trial, uh, for our listeners, enrolled 5,530 patients aged at least 20 years, which I think is a funny number considering the population, who were maintained on dual antiplatelet therapy 6 to 18 months after PCI with the drug-eluting stent. Uh, so these patients had some sort of PCI intervention. Um, and then we're on dual antiplatelet therapy for, at a minimum, uh, six months or as long as 18 months. And they could not have had a clinical event in that sort of post-PCI uh, period. And what they did with these patients, is they randomized them after the DAPT one-to-one to monotherapy with either clopidogrel 75 milligrams or aspirin 100 milligrams uh, for 24 months. And we're looking at a primary composite endpoint of all-cause mortality, non-fatal MI, stroke, readmission due to ACS, or a bleeding academic research consortium or BARC type three or greater uh, score bleed. And just for you guys to know, that's it's a big old bleed. That is overt bleeding with a drop in hemoglobin greater than three grams. Like that's not like a nosebleed. Oh, like wow. that is like you're mm-hmm. like dumping out blood. So it's, it's not, it's so a significant bleed is what I'm saying here. And basically, for you to know about this initial trial, this host exam, as at the end of the trial, the primary outcome occurred in 5.7% of patients in the clopidogrel group and 7.7% in the aspirin group. In other words, the clopidogrel group had. Um, a lower rate of the primary composite endpoint, um, and it was pretty clinically significant. It was statistically significant um, with a hazard ratio of 0.73 and a p-value of less than like uh, 0.0035. So good study, interesting, argued in favor of clopidogrel after DAPT for um, patients who have undergone PCI that had lower risks of bleeding and did not seem to have um, a higher recurrence of uh, adverse cardiovascular events. So that's that's not the trial we're talking about, uh, or at least it is indirectly. The the authors actually extended the host exam trial out for five years after randomization. Turns out the effect persistent clopidogrel still seemed to do better in terms of fewer adverse outcomes and fewer ischemic events. And before I get into the post hoc analysis and sort of talk about that, any questions about the initial sort of host exam stuff? Did that all make sense? Did I explain that okay?
0: Yeah. I just and this was this was done in Korea, right? This Correct. is mm-hmm.
2: Yep. So it's one of the arguments and that which can be extrapolated to say you're not arguments, but limitations is that, you know, that may limit generalizability to a sort of populations that we work with. Um, so important point. So to the study that I'm talking about, this is the post hoc analysis of the host exam. So we say, okay, clopidogrel might be better than aspirin monotherapy after dolentic platelet therapy after someone's had a PCI. How does that apply to various sort of um, risk cohorts? So especially what does that look like in high risk groups? Does it do better in certain high risk versus low risk populations. And so what the authors did is looked at the data they already had, and stratified patients um, by risk scores, so they looked at this thing called the DAPT score, dual antiplatelet therapy score, which is interesting, because it's, I, I want to make sure that I say this right, the higher the DAPT score is the higher the ischemic risk, but the lower the bleeding risk is what the authors say. And if you have a low DAPT score, you have a lower ischemic risk, but a higher bleeding risk. So there's this sort of weird divergence that I still haven't quite figured out why that is.
0: Paul, the the score, if you look at the score on MD Calc, uh, it, it's like you get minus points if your age is mm-hmm. older and then everything yep. else is just an ischemic risk factor. So I feel like they're just like, if yeah. you're old, your bleeding risk is high. Yeah. And then like how many, if you have less of these ischemic factors, then, you know, that's the only way to get a low score is to be old and not and not have, and have no other risk.
2: <laughs> have yeah, and then risk. You, you can start with a score of negative two, which is mm-hmm. also just a weird um, quirk. Yeah, so that's the DAP score, which we'll come back to. And then the other one that they looked at was the thrombolysis and myocardial infarction risk score for secondary prevention, a mouthful. And then you try to abbreviate this it like TRS2 prime P or something awful like that. So we're, <laughs> I'm going to say that as little as possible. But that's a score which is basically used to sort of predict recurrence of cardiovascular events. And it's based on age greater than 75, presence of diabetes, high blood pressure, current tobacco use, um, sort of all the ACBD risks that you would expect. And so Looking at these risks and sort of risk stratifying the patients in this host exam trial, basically what they found is that the clopidogrel effect was fairly consistent across all these sort of risk strata. So if you had this high TRS risk score, which means high clinical risk, you had a lower primary composite outcome with clopidogrel compared to aspirin monotherapy. Same goes for low risk by that score. And then if you look at the DAP score, if you have a high ischemic risk and a low bleeding risk, you did better with clopidogrel. So you bled less and you had fewer ischemic events. And if that score was low, meaning a lower ischemic risk, but a higher bleeding risk, you still did better off. And in in fact, in the high TRS strata, so if someone has a high risk of clinical events, they found that patients in the aspirin group had like, I think there were like nine hemorrhagic strokes, or maybe there were eight hemorrhagic strokes in that group, but something close to that, compared to clopidogrel um, in that same group that had zero uh, hemorrhagic strokes. So, it, it just kind of reinforced the fact that there's probably a lower risk of intracranial bleeding with clopidogrel compared to aspirin therapy. So, in some total, and then I'll let you guys ask your questions and, and just make sure I explain this correctly, it seems like low-risk, high-risk, doesn't bleeding or ischemic events, clopidogrel just seems to be better than aspirin, at least in this post-hoc analysis of this trial that looked at that exact same thing after someone has already undergone dual platelet therapy following PCI. So a lot of abbreviations, a lot of words that I just put out there. Someone asked me a question or say something, so it's not just me for like five straight minutes.
0: Nor, was this talked about in your hematology, oncology, fellowship, you know, world of blood?
1: <laughs> I, I think uh, that's a great question. So we we often are at odds with the cardiologists uh, about uh, which agents to use and whether to use antiplatelet therapy at all. So um, this was not actually talked about in our conferences the last few months, but this is kind of an ongoing conversation uh, in and around the dual antiplatelet uh, kind of duration of therapy conversation, which was uh, one piece of this that I think they looked at as well. And they found that uh, kind of regardless of how long you had been on dual antiplatelet therapy, the benefit to clopidogrel was, was the same that remained um, over aspirin. So that was kind of an interesting and I think probably important other analysis that they did and that yeah the the hemorrhagic strokes uh component was was quite concerning and uh a little bit surprising to me that it was so skewed in one direction over the other yeah yeah
0: <laughs> so so essentially Paul the the top line result is that just like it doesn't matter what their risk is like mm-hmm. the risk scores don't matter just like clopidogrel outperformed in all the risk groups uh compared to aspirin
2: that's yeah that's the takeaway
0: and this goes back because we were digging into this. There there was the, you mentioned host exam. And then like in the 1990s, there was the Capri trial where they looked at clopidogrel versus full-dose aspirin. And there it outperformed it better as well. But back then, clopidogrel was still, uh, was not generic yet. So it was still, you know, cost prohibitive. And it wasn't, I think, that much better that right. everybody just had to do it. And so I think that's where we've been at. But now, the, it seems like the evidence has accumulated that the P2Y12 inhibitors are better uh, or clopidogrel specifically um, in, in, in the host exam that we're talking about here. And you know, Paul, what in the back of my mind, because you always hear people talking about clopidogrel has to be converted from a prodrug into the active, and mm-hmm. they always they talk about like these certain medications that affect the metabolism and certain genetic, um, like loss of function mutations or gain of function mutations. And they actually did that Taylor PCI trial, um, which was published sometime in 2020, where they actually tried to look at the genetic mutations and said, like, is this something we should be looking at? And does is this going to improve outcomes? And in that one, it didn't improve outcomes. So I guess that's why we, didn't, we don't do this all the time. But, you know, once in a while, I don't know about Nora and Paul, but I feel like I interact with some specialists that, like, they feel very strongly about, you know, whether or not clopidogrel is good mm-hmm. enough for if we have, should be checking something before we just put someone on it. So that's why I was kind of curious to dig into this a little bit. But it seems like for right now, you're okay to just put people on clopidogrel if they have an indication. You don't have to worry about the genetics underlying it. Yeah,
2: I, I think that's right. And it's, you'll probably ask me at some point if this is practice changing for me. You know, in practicality, Probably the decision is because as to which antiplatelet medication is going to be used, it's going to be up to the cardiologist. And certainly I can have it put in that conversation or can at least prompt the discussion with the patient and their and their heart doctor. But in terms of my own personal practice, I don't know that much will change, but I'll be curious to see how this sort of changes the the conversation across that uh, that specialist group or if at all. Yeah.
0: One group I, d- I didn't think about, but I somewhere in my reading here, they were just mentioning aspirin. Some patients with like GI intolerance or dyspepsia, mm-hmm. maybe they don't do as well with the aspirin, but the clopidogrel is a little more friendly in those situations. So that maybe that would be a tiebreaker for me. Um, If the patient doesn't care and they're, you know, they're on dual antiplatelet and they're like, which one should I stop? And the interventionalist is out of the picture for whatever reason, you know, I I guess I could, I I would could push them towards clopidogrel of all other things being equal. Um, So Paul, how many hotcakes or tofurkey cakes do you give this one? And I'm sorry, was it tofurkey cake? (laughs) Tofurkey cake. Well, you know, it's a pancake, but it has, uh, Tofurky in it. Oh, <laughs> that that it's classic. very food. very
1: good, <laughs> very appetizing.
0: <laughs> well, Paul, you are familiar that on Thanksgiving, if you are uh, vegan, you can get a tofurky, which is a tofu turkey substance right. that I've mm-hmm. actually tried, and I have to say, I'm sorry to the people at tofu. I love tofu. Tofurky is not for me. I did I did not like it. I like most foods, Paul, but that I could not do. I could not deal with it.
2: Well, with that, um, yeah, I'll I'll do like three and a half, I guess, you know, this is a post hoc analysis. If I was doing the host exam trial proper, I would probably actually give it like a four or four and a half. But the fact that this is sort of like the risk stratification and just give me an excuse to go back and dig into an older trial, I I think this will probably give me like three and change of uh, a tofurkey cake, even though I I don't feel fully satisfied with the answer you gave me as to what that is. (laughs) So I, I think this will contribute towards what will ultimately be some practice changing data, but maybe we're not quite there yet.
0: Now it's time to move on to the part of the show where we're just going to run through some hot takes, uh, a couple shorter takes on some recent articles. Nora, you're first. And do you have a clever name to to run by Paul?
1: I always do. uh, And I'm very curious for his his insights into this one. So the trial we're going to be talking about now is called Reprieve. Paul, what do you think?
2: I mean, I think that, Largely depends on how they derive reprieve. So, what? Tell me, tell me the full trial name, <laughs> and how they tortured this yeah. poor acronym out of it.
1: And we've we've confirmed now that the way Paul judges the trial names is based on the derivation, which is not how everyone judges trial names. But
2: what? So no now before you tell me the trial. So, what other metrics are we talking about then? Like otherwise, we're just picking random words out of a dictionary that we like and Fun just name. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> what I, I that's what
0: I would do. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It's yeah. too logical. Oh, right. okay. It's so, too yeah. logical. Um, Tell me how
0: you got to reprieve. Yeah.
1: Okay. So <laughs> the official title on clinicaltrials.gov is. These
2: people get paid to write this stuff. You know, you know. like this is <laughs> yeah. what their entire yeah. like jobs are based on is actually yeah. scholarship. And if we're just making <laughs> yeah. up words, yeah. Sorry. What
1: is it? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I wonder if they had a consulting firm kind of weigh in on this. But um, the name is randomized trial to prevent vascular events in HIV or reprieve which does not have pitavastatin in it unfortunately
2: yeah none, none of that works yeah. sorry go ahead so
1: so not to jump to the trial design but uh the trial looked at uh, the benefit of pitivastatin or a statin uh, in uh, patients with HIV who were at low to moderate risk of cardiovascular disease um, over a long time period. Um, it looked at over 7,000, almost 8,000 adults aged 40 to 75 who were taking antiretroviral therapy for their HIV diagnosis. Um, they had preserved CD4 counts, and most of them Actually had suppressed viral loads, and they all uh, were. Uh, w- they all had a low to moderate cardiovascular disease risk on enrollment in the trial, and they were randomized to either pitavastatin four milligrams daily or placebo. Just to remind ourselves, the the ASCVD risk score that they used um, uh, looked at a risk of less than five as low risk.
2: So, yeah, Nora, I wanted to ask, so the, in terms of estimating that cardiovascular risk, they, they use the pulled cohort equation, is that right?
1: That's correct.
2: Okay, which I think, if memory serves, did not actually include patients with HIV in this derivation.
1: No, it doesn't, and there's there's a new der- derived uh, calculator tool that is being used, but it actually, it's not yet kind of worked into all of the guidelines, so this is kind of the standard way they have historically measured uh, ASCVD risk in 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 the trial and uh, and kind of over the last 10 to 15 years, even in patients with HIV, though this may very well change in the ne- coming next couple of years.
0: I, I did want to mention, because we forgot to say this up front, this was covered by Dr. Alyssa Mancini in Digest number 41 and 45. And the reason they're looking at statins for um, prevention of cardiovascular mm-hmm. disease and HIV, It's it's, correct me if I'm wrong, Nora, but even if patients have a suppressed viral load, they they're on ART, uh, they they still have a higher cardiovascular risk than you know other people th- of the same age without HIV, right?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And there's more data uh, being. Uh- assessed looking at the reasons for that and the, the actual pathophysiology behind it. There's some thought that maybe it's immune activation related just chronically, even with uh, mm. with a suppressed viral load. Um, there was some thought uh, that the drugs that were used were, were contributing to it, but it doesn't seem like that is sufficient to explain the increased risk over time. And so, because we have such effective therapies now for HIV, we're kind of running into these chronic chronic conditions that are more common in this patient population uh, and happen at different times than in patients without HIV.
0: And then my other question would be, why pativistatin? Is it because there's concern with interactions with other medications, or is this just like a drug that people are looking to make money on getting it, you know, mm. a specific FDA approval. I'm sure it's a little bit of everything, but.
1: Um, great question. So I, I think the primary reason that pitivistatin was used for this trial is because it doesn't have interactions with the common antiretroviral therapy, which many other statins do. Um, so, uh, So I think that's the primary reason.
0: So is this practice changing for you? I mean, how are the number, any numbers needed to treat or things like that you wanted to point out and what do you recommend to the audience?
1: So I think we covered it actually twice in the digest, once when the press release came out in the spring, uh, because the trial was actually stopped early for efficacy, which Mm -hmm. doesn't happen all that frequently. And this was at a median follow-up of 5.1 years um, in this patient population patient population of uh, over 7,000 patients. And this was because at their interim analysis, they saw that the primary outcome, the major adverse cardiovascular events, uh, were significantly lower in the group that had received pitivastatin compared to the placebo group. That uh, that aligned to 4.81 per 1,000-person-year events compared to 7.32 per 1,000-person-year events. And that Uh, converts to a number needed to treat to prevent an event of 106.
0: Yeah. And that's for primary prevention,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: which is not, I mean, for a primary prevention, that's, you know, that, that seems like a reasonable number. (laughs) It's perfectly fine. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's kind of right in the ballpark of what we, the other things we do for primary prevention. Uh, They, they're like between 100 and 300 in general, in terms of numbers needed to treat
0: so th- this seems like the kind of thing we were talking off air that where statins for patients with diabetes, statins are just sort of a standard, moderate intensity statin for all patients with diabetes. It seems like they're moving towards that with uh, statins for, um, or or maybe just pitavastatin, or uh, if there's another statin that can be. Easily prescribed, mm-hmm. co-prescribed with ART, then then those would be, uh, you know, this would be practice changing. It's not something that I'm thinking of right now. Oh, this patient has HIV. Um, I need to start them on a statin. That's not something that I've been doing.
1: Right. I th- yeah. I think I think it I think it shows uh, that there's benefit even in the lower risk cohort within this study. Um, and so it's worth probably thinking about starting and. A statin, or at least having a conversation with patients about uh, about starting one, even in, in a group of patients that you wouldn't necessarily, based on their ASCVD risk, otherwise be thinking about it.
2: Mm. Yeah, because I mean, the range of risk was like between like zero and 20%. Right. So this is a wide swath of cardiovascular risk that they were sort of looking at. But I, I think even at the Lower end of the spectrum, you still saw benefits. So mm-hmm. uh, it's the question that you have, Matt, is there, the question like, what do you do for patient selection, and is it just easier to just go with all patients uh, who are living with HIV just because we yeah. know their cardiovascular risk is elevated, and we just don't have data to be more selective?
0: Yeah, it sounds like a big trial, and uh, you know, so we'll we'll of course keep covering this in the digest or on mm-hmm. hotcakes, and and maybe this will make it into uh, future guidelines. Let let's move on to another article. Paul, this one this one was about starchy vegetables. Did you did you get a chance to look at this one too? <laughs> I looked at, it is
2: dense, dude. <laughs> I, <laughs> I was ready for some light reading about how potato chips are bad. And instead, um I was glad that you picked this one and not me. So, yeah. so this maybe was covered, you'll tell me what this is about because I had a hard time teasing things apart.
0: Right. So I found out about this one because it was covered by Hannah Smith in the digest number forty-six. And this was by Juan et al., The Association Between Changes in Carbohydrate Intake and Long-Term Weight Changes. This was a prospective cohort study. It appeared in the BMJ in September 2023. And I'm not used to reading um, literature about nutrition. And this was like, you know, these were, they were scraping like NHANES data sets and, Uh, this one is a little bit dense to go through, but, uh, I'll, I'll give you my dumbed down version, which I mean, dumbed down for me, not for you audience. You're smart. Uh, so in, in healthy middle-aged adults, they found that increasing intake, uh, not surprisingly in increasing intake of fiber, uh, natural sugars, whole grains, fruit, and non-starchy vegetables was associated with less weight gain when you compared it to refined grains, uh, and potatoes and other starchy vegetables and sugar-sweetened beverages. That's not really that surprising, but I guess what made this one get headlines was the fact that they were saying, not only do you have to worry about eating vegetables, but you should worry about which type of vegetables you're eating because the starchy vegetables, which they were including as like peas, potatoes, corn, and I'm sure I'm missing another one, but those that those are the ones where, that were associated with more weight gain. So I'll pause there. Nora, Paul, any any thoughts or concerns, questions about this?
1: I I agree that most most of it seemed relatively obvious, um, and and it seemed like the the overarching message was that the fried potatoes are the worst number one, and then uh, beyond that trying to limit limit some quantities of these starchier, starchier products and mm-hmm. balancing it out with better things like whole grains is uh, is the most specific recommendation we can take away from this.
2: Yeah. I, I think some people are concerned, like I, I wouldn't slice and dice the vegetables up too much and be specific which vegetables are good and which vegetables are bad. I think that was sort of one of the potential criticisms of this. Like it's, yes, obviously French fries, not great. But <laughs> I think, was, you know, rather than saying, you know, rather than getting parsing things down too much, vegetables are probably still better than just drinking sodas. And I, just mm-hmm. be careful in terms of the messaging around what you're trying to say, I guess, would be the only the only thought I had about this study.
0: Yeah, this was a, a hard one. They were saying, let's say every extra 100 grams of starch that someone ate over a four year period they would gain an extra 1.5 kilograms, and that's 100 grams per day of starch, which is a lot. I mean, that's that's a lot. Uh, you know, we talked about we've talked about carbs a little bit recently on the show. So, like 15 grams is like a serving of a carb. So, when you're talking 100 grams, that's several servings. So. Yeah, people that at are at two. Yeah, and and they said that people that were eating carbohydrates uh, from starchy vegetables for every extra hundred grams per day, they estimated that over a four-year period, they would gain uh, two point six kilograms compared to people who were eating an extra hundred grams a day of non-starchy vegetables. Those people would have uh, three kilograms of weight loss. So kind of like. That they have the they have the graphics showing that now, I will just say there were some pretty entertaining responses in the b m j um you know underneath the article linked to it, and the the valid points that they were making, which I thought is that they were saying like if you look in the supplement that the patients that were eating more of the starchy type vegetables tended to be eating more calories in general, there was some suggestion of that, so it would make sense that they would gain more and the the other thing is that they were just saying that culturally, you know, certain foods are just eaten. And so to tell people not to eat uh, potatoes or corn or peas, whatever, if that's part of how they cook, you know, that's might not be the most helpful thing and is not really, uh, might not be realistic or culturally, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure what the right word is. Probably people are not just gaining all this extra weight just because they're eating peas and corn and potatoes maybe it's the company maybe it's because it's doused in you know with other there's other greasy foods or they're fry they're frying it whatever it's probably the way they're preparing it that's that's causing it i don't think it's the vegetables themselves that would be my take and of course we all know that refined sugars and sugar sweetened beverages are going to put weight on people so you know i'm not going to tell people to be too specific about the way that they're eating their vegetables, but I will, you know, the way they prepare their vegetables, I think is probably more of what you should be talking to people mm-hmm. about. It's
2: really well said. I think it's exactly right. So rather than assume the French fries is the same thing as a baked sweet potato, which is obviously yeah. bananas on the face of it.
0: When, when we talked to Michelle McMackin um on our uh we were talking about nutrition, you know, she's like, I don't have a problem with potatoes. Like she's mm-hmm. not telling people not to eat potatoes. So enough said about that. Paul, to to round it out here. Can you tell me a little bit about cannabis and heavy metals? Should I be uh should I be worried about uh this? Yes.
2: <laughs> um okay, <laughs> put my cat down. So this is um an article that was initially covered by Beth Garbs Garbatelli. Uh this is from McGraw et al. in twenty twenty three in environmental health perspectives, which I'm sure that Matt, you read on the weekly basis. Robert sure. often is published.
0: I have an RSS. But sure
2: sure. A <laughs> Google notification but this is blood and urinary metal levels among exclusive marijuana users a phrase I love um, and and a Haynes from 2005 2018 so basically it turns out Matt I, I don't know if you've heard about this cannabis stuff but people like it it's, it's becoming popular, I've heard, and it's it's legal in like, it was 21 states, at least at the, the publishing of the article, which accounts for over half the U.S. population at this point. So lots and lots of people are using it empirically, like you just in, anecdotally talking to patients like they, a lot of my patients either have prescribed cannabis or just use it recreationally. Like it's it's just very, very prevalent. And what we know about cannabis is it is a hyper accumulator of heavy metals. So what, what that means is it actually kind of leaches heavy metals in the soils and the water that it uses. Gets stored in the vacuoles, and it's not well regulated. It may shock you to hear because it's still illegal at the federal level. So we don't have the FDA weighing in on sort of what permissible levels of cadmium and lead are in cannabis. So it's just this wild west out there of this um, plant that can hyperaccumulate these potentially toxic metals that can impact neurodevelopment, can cause malignancy, and can have other kind of effects. So basically, what the researchers did is they did, they combed through NHANES data from 2005 to 2018 and looked at blood levels of cadmium, lead, mercury, manganese, and selenium, and then also urinary levels of 15 different heavy metals. And they sort of stratified these levels among patients' uh, exposure to tobacco and cannabis use. So, they had four big categories. They had folks who never used tobacco or had at least not recently used tobacco or cannabis. That's group one. They had exclusive cannabis use, but not tobacco use. They had exclusive tobacco use or they had dual use of these things. So before I move on in terms of what they found in terms of heavy metals in the blood or urine, your takeaway here is that they found that cadmium and lead levels were higher among those who used cannabis exclusively compared to people who did not use tobacco or cannabis. So basically cannabis um, does expose you to higher levels of, of lead and cadmium. And these levels are higher the more recently that you had actually used cannabis. So it's these, which is not surprising. And then the exposure kind of decays as time elapses between last use. If you use tobacco, you had higher cadmium levels than other groups. And the blood lead levels were comparable among exclusive tobacco use and exclusive cannabis use. So in other words, whether you only smoke tobacco or you only smoke cannabis, your blood levels of lead were about the same. So in summary, your takeaway point, rather than kind of parsing through a lot of confusing cross-referencing, cannabis is a source of lead and cadmium exposure at least according to the data set that they scraped down
0: yeah and they they didn't really try to look at any clinical effects of that or they didn't really quant- I was trying to find is, is this a concerning level of cadmium is this a con- yeah, like right. the the answer for lead is any level of lead is is not good is what i found but i i couldn't really find any specific like way to quantify is this cadmium going to cause problems it's hard to to know how to use this clinically. So will this change anything that you do when you're talking to patients about this? Yeah, it's,
2: you know, the conversations around cannabis use in general, I, I do talk about safety specifically. And I, I the, you know, that the, my usual take-home point is like, please don't use cannabis and drive. Like that is the one health yeah. outcome that we know is, is measurably worse. The pendulum is swung that we're very permissive about cannabis use. And because it's so prevalent, I think we're just kind of, we almost don't comment on it now. And this might prompt me to just, Use it or don't, but I should at least let you know that there are heavy metals that, you're, that you may be being exposed to, and I don't think we know what the clinical impacts of those things are. So if you are going to use it, at least be mindful that there are potential duct exposures there if that is a consideration in terms of your decide to use or not. So I, I will probably mention it, um, but in terms of how I practice medicine, it's not going to change all that much.
1: And are you going to give any uh, advice about kind of mechanism of using it uh, in terms of ingestion, inhalation? Good question.
2: It's a great question. I don't know based on these data that I can actually make any specific recommendations. I don't know if in, eating lead is better or worse than inhaling it. Like it's, it's hard for me to know, so I, I I did not go that deep down the rabbit hole. So I think it's probably a I mean, you know, blanket recommendation so far.
0: So I'm sure the listeners are a little bit familiar with what like lead toxicity might look like, but cadmium toxicity. I I just looked it up, Paul, just you know for fun, and sure. this one is, it it can apparently cause kidney dysfunction and issues with. Bone mineral density, specifically, it can decrease bone mineral density. So, Paul, have you heard of itai itai disease, Matt? That rings a weird
2: bell. Like I, I want to say that it's Japanese for "ouch, ouch," but I can't. I can't remember much
0: more than that. Am I, I making that up? I am shocked that you know this. So, Paul, this gets its name uh, given to a mass cadmium poisoning that occurred in the Toyama prefecture of Japan starting around 1912 because there were uh, cadmium was being released into rivers by mining companies in the mountains and people oh were getting this just terribly painful disease where their back they were having back severe back pain and joint pain and it was related to this uh, cadmium toxicity i i doubt people are getting that much cadmium from their cannabis but uh <laughs> You know, I'm sure there will be a case report if if it ever happens.
2: Right. Well, now, thanks for our show. Vigilance um, will be increased. Vigilance. So, we're, if anyone has
0: diagnosed Etai Etai disease because of cannabis exposure, I bet you can get I bet you can get that published.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Just think of us in the acknowledgement session. <laughs> this has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. All right. Get your show notes at the Curbsiders.com and sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, once each month you'll get our Curbsiders Digest, which recaps the latest practice changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine.
0: And we're committed to high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. It really does help people find the show. You can also send us an email at askcurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that we have a Patreon. If you want to get bonus episodes, ad-free shows, hang out on our Discord. That's patreon.com slash curbsiders. And... This episode and most episodes are available for CME for all health professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Wanted to give a special thanks to Doctors Williams and Toronto for helping to write and produce this episode. Our technical production is done by the team at PodPaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Chris the Man Chew Manchu moderates our Discord. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wado.
1: I've been Dr. Nora Toronto.
2: And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.